Greetings and salutations. This is Life and Books and Everything. Good to have you with us. I'm joined for the last uh, LBE, though perhaps uh, if I write something, I'll read one of my short articles, but last real LBE of the year. And so it's good to have Colin and Justin here with me for all manner of revelry and book-related hijinks and end-of-year Christmas reflections. Coming to you in just a moment, I want to thank Crossway and encourage you. A book we've mentioned several times before, but at the end of the year, it's a great time to mention this again, Be Thou My Vision by Johnny Gibson. It's a 31-day liturgical guide designed to provide structure to the daily worship of individuals and families. I don't know how long, I suppose if you did everything, it might take 15, 20 minutes, but it's really well done. It's it's lovely to hold and to look at and gives you uh, readings and a prayer and intercessory prayers and from confessions. And it, it's it's kind of a scaled down daily book of common prayer geared with a, a Presbyterian bent. I mean, what could be better than all of those things? It really is rich. So pick up a copy. It makes a great Christmas gift or something as you're starting uh, the New Year's and want to try to re-up your devotional life, this would be a great resource. Thank you, Crossway. Uh, do you guys do New Year's resolutions? What, what, do you, what do you usually do or what, do you have something in mind, Colin? Well, I do. I do have hopes. <laughs> with the new you have year. hopes. I do, I do have hopes. I don't think I formally do the resolutions, but I definitely have hopes that uh, they last me for a little while. Um, habits would be better than hopes, but uh, right, New Year is a good time. I mean, it's it, you definitely come through feeling like I'm excited to get back to normal, eating uh -huh. normal food, having a normal work routine, having normal workouts. Um, it's definitely the the holidays are wonderful, but. Ooh, they are much. I mean, in my household, my wife's birthday, my older son's birthday, and my daughter's birthday are all within two weeks, three weeks Ooh. with Christmas. So yeah, it gets rough. just me a little bit much. So rough. Yeah. Our uh, our four year old, he just turned four on Saturday, and uh, he has asked for probably every day for nine months if it's his birthday, Amaro. And has told us every day of presents he wants. And by the end of his birthday on December 10, he was already telling us what he wanted for his birthday the next day. And then we tried to inform him his birthday would never be farther away than it was now. But there was Christmas, and that was a new concept. And so that gave some, some uh, hope springs eternal, that there's yet another gift-giving holiday. And he said, who's that for? I said, well, it's for Jesus. Well, do we have to get Jesus presents? Well, Jesus gets you presents. So some good theological moments. Justin, do you do uh, resolutions coming into the new year? I've been kind of hit or miss whether I formally do them or not. I don't really write them down, but uh, it's sort of a perpetual resolution of read more Bible, get in better shape. Like that's You have been getting in better life. shape, yeah. right? And I'm trying to read my Bible too. So Okay, well. Yeah. Trying, trying to do both but yeah it does seem like even though you know um that there's not necessarily something magical about the calendar turning over and 
a new year beginning, it does feel like, okay, this is a fresh start. Maybe this is the year where I, where everything comes together. And I think even if it doesn't, maybe you get a few weeks uh, of better habits and more resolve. Yeah, I'm like you guys. I don't write things down for a New Year's resolution, but it does feel like, okay, it's a good good reason to try to get some better habits again. Mine are usually the same. Uh, more scripture memorization, less time on my phone or in front of the internet somehow, and uh, just more slow, quiet moments of reflection, which are which are hard to come by, partly because of my stage of life, partly because of my own way of living my life. But I always come into the new year, and isn't it, you know, Christmas has a certain feel to it. I think I said this last year. Christmas, at least in our culture, often seems to throw people into the past, into there's, there's old movies, yeah. nostalgia, you know, It's a Wonderful Life, is you know, the classic American Christmas movie, but even Charlie Brown Christmas is a very sort of classic dated feel. It's like Christmas throws you back into sort of sepia-toned or black-and-white past where, where all of a sudden then you transition to New Year's and it's gauche and and loud and obnoxious and rocking New Year's Eve with crazy... It's just a weird... It probably it says something about what America is like in the space of those seven days. And then in the middle of all of it is a whole lot of football. So you're really getting a sense of what America is like. Have, have you guys been watching, speaking of um, the other football, the World Cup? Uh, you know, my all my teams are gone. It, well, I shouldn't say all of them. The U.S., course and then the dutch and i was rooting for the english we we had uh, eight of us in our family each picked four teams we're recording this here monday okay. so uh i have one team left i picked croatia so ah. i'm putting all my chips in on croatia have you guys been into the world cup i like it for the history as in i like to be able to come up with the combinations of historical um, conflicts between the two. So uh, that sounds yes. Well, England France was uh, England France. There's a was lot a to draw. On. One. I gotta say though, it's hard to top Morocco versus France. I know there I know. is some serious medieval uh, crusades warfare <laughs> going on between Morocco and France. Well, and it was Morocco and Portugal before that. I mean, exactly. Yeah. So it's it's a march through the Iberian Peninsula up to meet uh, to meet the French. If only it were being played in tours. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's, right. Uh, so I, I like it. I like it for that. I think it's just nice to watch a sporting event that a whole bunch of other people care about. So it's tense, but that I don't have a stake in it. I don't really care who wins. That's pretty fun. Justin, I think that's the most Colin Hansen answer yet. That's on true. The yes, that's true. <laughs> yeah, I I proudly represent all of the people out there that haven't watched one second of the World Cup. So you can heap shame upon me, but I I have no idea who's playing until I see some notice on the news. He's got Nebraska recruiting to follow. Yeah, I do. Um, yeah. It's going to be huge uh, with Matt Rule. What happened to my... Nebraska volleyball? Yeah, first time in ten years I think they didn't get to the Elite Eight. Uh, well, we won't we won't talk about college basketball with Collins. 
It's not really, Colin. You get Northwestern. You went there, and then oh, I moved to Alabama. I'll take Alabama. It's That's true. not. Yeah, but they did both beat <laughs> Michigan State. Hey, if they're going to be good, I'm going to claim them, especially with what's happened to Northwestern Athletics. So I'm going to yeah. accept that Northwestern and Alabama both beat Michigan State. I will just not rub it in. You're welcome. Yeah, thank you. Christmas. Uh, all right, just fun Christmas exercise. Fun for us anyways. I'm going to give you some Christmas movies, and I want you guys to give a – what should we uh, love it or loathe it? I want you to try to not be in the middle, but I want you to, yes, I love this. I will watch it, even if, even if I'm embarrassed to admit, or oh <laughs> please, okay. So no no shame zone. All right, it's a wonderful life. Love it, love it. it. That's great. Love it. You, yeah, love uh, Die Hard, which is a Christmas movie. I know what what about Die Hard. Not a fan. No? Never seen it. Never seen it? Never well, seen it. Well, if you do, watch it on TV so it, it bleeps out. There's a lot of swearing, I, I think, <laughs> in the in the original. Okay. I, uh, um, this was just uh, the the list that was printed out, best Christmas movies. Uh, Scrooge? Why would you see that movie? <laughs> okay, no. well, there's my answer. No? No. Is that no. the one with Bill Murray? Uh, one of them, yeah. Okay. I mean, how many uh, editions of, the, of that one are there? Scrooge. Yeah, I was thinking yeah, about that—the Scrooge. I mean, the yeah. the uh, A Christmas Carol. The my wife loves the the George C. Scott version, so that that's good. Uh, a Christmas Story. Do we have that's to love red... it or hate it? Go ahead. Okay. Justin. Well, what what? Yeah. What's your? Eh. I loved Justin? it growing up. I loved it growing up. I think I get a little more cringe as it gets older, and it it doesn't age as well, but. Uh... A lot of happy memories of watching. I can't that watch it on repeat, is what I'm saying. I enjoyed watching it. I like remembering it. I, my my son's friend got a BB gun a couple years ago. I mean, that's. Um, I just can't keep watching it. What about you? Yeah, whenever it's on, I think I'm gonna like this, but I don't. The the yeah. You know, oh, there's the funny line, and it's gonna yeah. poke. But yeah, it it is. It's a, it's the the lamp. It's weird. It's weird. There's the tongue on the pole. I, what, was yeah. it a play at first? Because it seems like you watch it, it doesn't kind of have the action of a normal movie. Like things just kind of you're waiting <laughs> like for the set, set pieces. To yeah, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> uh, Miracle on Thirty Fourth Street. I've never seen that. It was a good one. A classic. Getting a long time ago, but it was a good okay. one. Okay. Uh, National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. I bet that's Kevin's favorite. I. I do like watching that one. I can rewatch that one. I have to. Admit. Yeah, cousin Eddie. Again, when you watch it, pretty and you vile, have your though. kids. You go, ooh, I yeah. forgot about all that. Let's get the TV version. Yeah, you want the TV or Vid Angel or something here? But yeah, uh, I, I like uh, Home Alone. I do like Home Alone. That's a good one. I mean, I, we're my also namesake. we're also the right age for Home Alone, meaning we're about the same age as Macaulay Culkin. Wow. So when that came out, that was a big deal. Christmas with the Cranks is on the list here. Never seen that. I'm no? Sure. I think I've seen a scene or two, but I haven't seen it. Uh, Elf. You got to love, love that it. Elf. I do love yeah. Elf. I, I mean, like if, I could just, if I could just find it on TV, where is it on? <laughs> I can never find that thing on TV. Someone it's playing alert the, right alert now. The programmers everywhere. It is on. Uh, okay, this is my wife's favorite, and she always 
wants to make the kids watch it, and they just did watch it over the weekend, and I think they actually liked it. White Christmas. Got to be White Christmas. We only Very sold slow. my son on it because there were soldiers in it, but I think he yeah. there wasn't enough. Dancing soldiers? <laughs> yeah, that, I think that caught him a little by surprise. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it's my wife's favorite movie. That's a good one. Justin? I don't know if I've ever seen it. Oh, man. Justin, well, have you done scared. anything in your life? <laughs> it's just I mean, I'm, reading, I'm reading more Bible while you guys are watching. <laughs> oh, <all> yeah, <laughs> I know you uh, I know. I'm, he watches the Hallmark movies. He just likes I'm, the Hallmark Christmas movies. Okay, When Calls the Heart, what's your favorite season? Oh, yeah, right. <laughs> I'm we, just they, waiting to hear, Kevin, if you're going to mention my favorite Christmas movie. But the maybe Grinch? It's still. Okay, no. what is it? Muppets Christmas Carol. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah. Uh, my family was watching White Christmas and Bing Crosby singing, I'm dreaming. So I started singing it. And my teenage daughter said, Dad, we only need one person singing this. So I turned the sound off, and I just kept singing it. <laughs> instead. And she was not pleased. She said, that's, that's not dad. what I meant. Classic dad. Classic Jeffrey. dad. Okay, yeah, dad. what about this? How about some uh, Christmas songs? We're not going to do hymns. Uh, we all love lots of hymns. Uh, secular Christmas songs, the type that are playing in the mall, they're playing on the radio station, uh, the ubiquitous "All I Want for Christmas Is You" by the by the Queen of Christmas. Didn't she try to l- legally trademark her name as <laughs> the Queen of Christmas? And the court said, "No, you can't do that," or something <laughs> like that. What do you, do you like it? I have to admit, I I tell myself I should hate it, but I don't. I kind of like it when it comes on. Colin Paul Paul McCartney wrote it, right? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I think that he wrote it, and he gets like a million dollars a year from residual royalties. Look it's, it up. Um, have you guys All ever right, seen the chart that shows um, how many people start listening on Spotify to yeah. that song? And it's sort of like, it's begun. Like October 10th or so, all of a sudden it just starts to spike a little bit. I mean, I, I say I, I'm i feeling pretty good as soon as you hear her um, – her tones beginning at the you know kind of warming up those vocal cords. It's a good it's a good feeling. Written and produced by Kerry and Walter Afensayev. I've not seen anything about uh, Paul McCartney <laughs> here. Are you sure you're not thinking one. of Last Christmas? Because he, he did write, write that? he did write Last Christmas. Okay. <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, we'll find out where uh, where Paul McCartney wrote. That. Oh, oh uh, Santa Paul. Baby. Oh man, that's on my Santa list of no. Baby. That's on my list of no. I can't do it. No. Do it. Uh, Winter Wonderland. Eh. Rudolph. Don't mind it. Don't mind it. Rudolph brings up the nostalgia. Grinch. I love the Grinch song. It's it's quite a it's it's quite a well written song. It is, and you know who Just sings it? Creativity. No. It's Tony the Tiger. <laughs> Same guy who was Tony <laughs> the Tiger. Makes sense. Yeah, saying you're a mean one, Mr. Grinch. By the way, if half of what we've said on this podcast so far is accurate, I'll be pretty surprised. Yeah, Paul McCartney (laughs) also did the voice for the Grinch. (laughs) Boris Karloff had had the flu. Uh, Yeah, this this whole set that I planned here is not going as well. Blue Christmas, I love a little Elvis Blue Uh, Christmas. Uh, All right, what's your favorite song that i missed or your most loathsome 
I gotta add a couple ones that I just can't. I can't do. I mean, I used to. I used to like when the top forty station would uh, would flip over into Christmas music, but it becomes the same ten songs. Yeah, very and much. I'm sorry, but Last Christmas and Wonderful Christmas Time, I can't do it. I can't do it. So give me some serious XM holiday traditions, and I'm okay. But I can't do the top forty stuff anymore. Um, Maybe it's cold outside. Yeah, no. Oh my goodness, I, it's amazing how these things become nostalgic for us until you actually listen to what they have to say. So, I mean, there's a lot of great ones. I just can't do the top forty ones. Justin? Grandma got run over by a reindeer. Let's not talk about famous Midwestern Christmas yeah. songs. Uh huh. <laughs> uh, well, did we miss any of your favorites or most infamous, Justin? No, but I did Google, and it's uh, Paul McCartney wrote "Wonderful Christmas Time." So well, we knew so that because he <laughs> sings it. <laughs> All right, I can't keep up with the pop culture stuff from you guys. Ke- Kevin is on top of his game. Well, it's not really pop. It was how many years? It was decades ago, wasn't it? Pop culture uh, in the eighties. Yeah. Good. Well, we should have stuck is... with we should have stuck with Nebraska signing day. <laughs> he, yeah. Okay, I'm ready for that one. <laughs> so you didn't watch the World Cup. You do know the Beatles broke up. Yep. Okay. All right. All but right. I'm still an Elvis guy. I'm still, <laughs> still an Elvis, Elvis guy. guy. I actually had a dream about Elvis last night. When I was a oh. kid, I used to pray before I went to sleep that I would dream about Elvis because oh, I liked what? Elvis so much, and I never ever had an Elvis dream, but I had one last night. Uh, I don't know if oh. I want to ask about what. He was just, uh, yeah, <laughs> just singing. Just, well, we'll just, yeah, he was singing to a, a lady. <sighs> wow, this is yeah. this is really going off script here. But <laughs> thankful for yeah, our sponsor, Crossway. <laughs> um, you know, at the Food Lion, right by my house, about two miles down from the house, so you go to the back of the parking lot, and there's a little, like band shell very many and there's a little plaque there that says i think it's elvis's grandparents lived here in mint hill north carolina or something and he would come and spend summer holidays here so right right there all just just thousands of people a day go past there don't even know the rich history (laughs) right here almost literally in my backyard that elvis would come during the summers I did Justin, wonder you where should... you were going with the whole back of the food line parking lot. Thing. So <laughs> There's a lot of for... good stuff at the back of the food <laughs> line. It's tying that one back it's in. It's not the Harris Teeter or the Piggly Wiggly. <laughs> it's not the Publix. I mean, we're not better than people. To, uh... Who can afford it anyway? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, let's try to salvage this and talk about books. We often end with books. We're coming to the end of the year and what are some of the best books you've read? Maybe you got one or two published in the last year. I mean, not you personally, though you might have that, but one or two you've read that were published in the last year, and one or two just other great books. And uh, I'm not going to limit on how many you mentioned, but we're going we're gonna to limit on time. So if you want to just rattle off a bunch, you can do that, or you can uh, sell us on one or two. So uh, give you like, Two minutes. Colin, what are some of the best books you read from the last year? For our very patient video folks Mm -hmm. here, 
I am going to share A World After Liberalism, uh, Philosophers of the Radical Right by Matthew Rose. Um, Kevin, you alluded to this in your review of Stephen Wolf. And this is very (laughs) insightful. Uh, Two books I read this year, Matthew Continetti's The Right and This, have been the most helpful books for me to understand the shifts in the Republican Party. Um, There's a line in here where he says that to imagine an anti-Christian right is difficult, but there is a post-Christian right that is waiting to be born. And so the way if if you've been following along with a lot of the conversations about with Tom Holland and Glenn Scrivener about the Christian origins of kind of the liberal political order, by which we mean simply our democratic political systems, this is a very, very, very good companion about the way that some anti-Christian writers, but who are aligned with Christian, uh, some Christian leaders on the right are recasting kind of a a post-liberal future. Uh, We could get into a lot more there, but suffice it to say, that was one of my best reads um, of the year. Really well-written and uh, presents at various... Yeah, short, presents at various Mm -hmm. points a a, a beautiful Christian alternative to to some of these ideas, but is uh, is sympathetic in that, trying to be fair to to what these ideas are about, not sympathetic to them in the end, but yeah, really, Mm -hmm. really good book. Well, Kevin, I thought, I mean, maybe people who've been listening to us for the last three years, thank you for your patience, um, have been able to pick up on this. But I think they'd be able to see that that we agree that there's that just returning to a kind of basic procedural liberalism is not enough. It's not sufficient for Christians. And yet this post-Christian right wing approach is problematic in all kinds of different ways but you did such a good job at the end of your Wolf Review, Kevin, of being able to say that there are many things we appreciate about the about this political order, but that it has to be ordered ultimately toward God, and it needs to be mediated through these institutions of family and community and church. We've talked about that before, and that's what I think Rose does such a good job of. I assume he's Catholic. I mean, I didn't. I didn't see that. I mean, he <coughs> quotes John Paul II yeah. in the end, yeah. and and so I, I would assume that he writes a lot for first things. First things, yeah. <coughs> so I assume that, but um, he just does a really good job of talking about the way that the that we can't just continue down the road of unfettered individualism, but we need the communal um, organizations that allow the individual to flourish. And I thought, I think that's that's where we ought to be here. So that was that was one of my one of my favorite reads. Um, what else you got? I, my other one, real quick. Uh, this was published, I think, last year. Hillary Mantel's The Mirror and the Light. It's the third and final of the Thomas Cromwell series. Uh, unfortunately, Hillary Mantel died this year. First two books in the series both won the Booker Prize for Top Fiction. Uh, I mean, The Mirror and the Light could have as well. I mean, we... Oh, man. Um, I don't think I've ever identified, which is probably a negative, never identified with a character as much as Mantell's mm. version of Thomas Cromwell. Um, just that I, I think the interpret the whole question is, who is he really? Is he just a shapeshifter? Does he have deep convictions? I think he has deep convictions as an evangelical. He's just trying to, surpri- to, trying to survive in an era where nobody keeps their head. And, um, yeah, spoiler alert, of course, he dies the same yeah. way um, as everybody else. But, um, man... Absolutely amazing historical fiction. Hillary Mantel, Mirror and the Light. 
I haven't read any of those. I, oh, I you got mentioned to. them before. Yeah, you got to. All right, I'll try to be quick. I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to list some. I'm going to uh write up in the next day or two my top 10 reads from the past year, so I'll put those on kevindeyoung.org and you'll get the full list, but uh The Good Country, A History of the American Midwest, yes. the 19th Century. Yes. And I'm I'm having John Lauk, is that how you say his name, Colin? Yeah. On the the podcast in the new year. Really well written, uh, just and it helps if you're from the Midwest, but even if you're not, that's good. And uh, a book that a lot of people haven't talked about, The Myth of American Inequality, uh, was really good. It's an, it, kind of an economics uh, nuts and bolts book. A Crossway book, old one, but the, the Sharnock Existence and Attributes of God volumes are just, they're, you love just holding them and then reading them. Really well done to Crossway. And uh, some books I read, not published in the last year, but I, that I just remember as some of my favorites. Uh, I finished at the beginning of the year, Bradley Bertzer's biography of Russell Kirk. He's a professor. Uh, Bertzer is at Hillsdale. Anyone who writes a, a really good biography on almost anyone is worth reading as you just get insights into what another human person is like, especially if they were interesting and did a lot or wrote a lot. And Kirk wrote a, a ton. Uh, David Hackett Fisher's Albion Seed, Four British Folkways. I admit I skimmed it. It's it's massive. But just his whole concept of these four British folkways in early American history and how that continues to affect that there's just there's not just one idea of liberty. There's really four regionally distinct ideas of liberty. And then he traces that with dozens of other categories uh, J. N. D. Kelly's book, uh, Golden Mouth, a biography of Chrysostom. Uh, I, I know lots of our students at RTS have read it. Mm. It's assigned, I think, one of the wow. classes. I didn't, I hadn't read it, but I read it when I was preparing a Sunday school class on Chrysostom. Man, I don't. People aren't going to like this, but he, he he sort of reminded me like the the Mark Driscoll of the the, <laughs> the early church. Okay, take out all you know. Use your discretion and how you understand. But I just mean he he was he made a lot of people upset, and he uh, he he spoke hard, harshly to people, uh, and of course didn't do all the things that 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 happened at. Mars Why do Hill, we remember but, him so positively? Then I well, mean, we should remember him. So, well, right, but I just how do you make that many people angry? But then also that could be instructive for us. Yeah, well, I'm using up my time here, but he was he was deposed at the Senate of the Oak. And then, uh, and it's 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 fascinating to read the twenty seven charges against him. And it was things like he called this abbot a little weirdo, is the translation. Um, he used the porcelain from the the baptistry and gave it to the poor or something. Mm. He he didn't deal with people delicately. He upset the uh, the empress more than the emperor, but you know, often was poking people in the eye, but he was so unbelievably popular with the people. So that's the short answer. He was okay. so popular with the people. He died in exile. He's considered a martyr, um, mm -hmm. marched off it, to the Black Sea. But then within, you know, a, a decade or so, the empire comes around and, and rehabilitates his reputation, which never was really lost among the people. So that's... Okay. That's why. And then uh, David McCullough passed away this past year, and I read probably three of his books, 1776 again, The Wright Brothers, which I hadn't read uh -huh, before. Nice yeah. 
uh, yeah, North Carolina, and has that great line. I'm not from Ohio, but has that great line. Like yeah. the very first is, you know, what what was the origin of their success? And it was something like to have good parents and the good fortune of being born in Ohio or something. Oh, wow. For the Wright brothers. All right. Uh, Justin, what are some of your favorites from the past year? Yeah, I would say from the past year, keep in mind those two categories of uh, recently published versus just having read them in the past year. I, I wondered, should I mention any books from Crossway or should I just say no books from Crossway? No, yeah, mention Crossway. Yeah, yeah. mention I'll, I'll mention two, um, which we've already talked about, Be Thou My Vision. Um, in terms of a book that that impacts your piety, that is conducive to worship, is God-centered, is biblically oriented. I mean, Johnny wasn't writing a lot of new stuff fresh. He was compiling and arranging, but he did it in such a beautiful way that um, anything that helps me worship the Lord mm -hmm. and uh, walk those ancient paths is really a welcome resource. And Johnny's going to do some more of them for Crossway, so I'm excited about that. Um, another one that I thought I'd mention, which I, we've mentioned on previous episodes, is just the Crossway Expository uh, Bible Commentary series. And Those are really good. I, yeah, I read through uh, Esther, uh, read through um, into the Psalms now and into Proverbs and uh, dipping into uh, other books of the Bible, just it's exactly the level that I want and need. It, it doesn't uh, assume a lot, uh, but it's in more depth than, say, a study Bible or something like that, but not, you know, 75 pages on two verses. So I really appreciated that. Again, you detect the common theme in terms of the Christian theology stuff. I'm, I'm looking for stuff that's going to help me read the Bible better and worship the Lord better. And then kind of on the more uh, political, historical, cultural front, I think this is probably in our top 10 or 20 for all three of us, uh, Matthew Cottonetti's The Book mm. of Right. And I noticed that it made Trevin Wax's uh, top books reads of the year as well. So it's The Right, The Hundred Year War for American Conservatism. And just written, I think, in a style that the three of us appreciate. It's history. Mm -hmm. It's got a narratival organization to it. Right. There's interesting characters. There's illumination for our present conflicts. And it just uh, makes sense of a lot of things. It's maybe not the the definitive telling, but it puts a lot of things together that were more disparate in my own mind. Um, in terms of a big history book, uh, Gordon Wood's Empire of Liberty, A History of the Early Republic, which is in the Oxford History of the United States series, which is still not complete. Um, there's there's one guy, I think, uh, won't shame him publicly, but I look on Wikipedia and I think he's been working on it for like 20 years. But um, you, you understand why Gordon Wood, as an Ivy League historian, is uh, revered and uh, maybe an overstatement to say increasingly reviled because he represents sort of an old school historiography that uh, knew how to tell narrative and didn't seem like it was necessarily having an axe to grind and can celebrate what was good in America and uh, yet doesn't whitewash the, the sins and shortcomings. Um, and then finally, a younger guy, I don't know his age exactly, but Garrett Graff, G-R-A-F-F, -F, uh, Online, he looks like he's maybe in his 30s or 40s, if 
being in your 40s is still considered a younger guy. Yeah. I think three of us <laughs> like to think so. Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely, Justin. The first book that I listened to from him, uh, this was on Audible, was uh, The Only Plane in the Sky, which was an oral history mm-hmm. yeah. of 9-11. And okay. um, yeah. I'm sure it's powerful to read it. It was more powerful to hear it because they, when they had a, a New York City firefighter, the voice actor kind of had a, a New York gruff male voice. And uh, it was just incredibly moving and powerful to listen to. And then I followed it up with his next book, which was the big book, Watergate, A New History, uh, and putting together things that hadn't been put together before. Uh, Garrett Graff certainly has the narratival gift and the investigative journalistic research historical abilities that are the sort of things that draw me into a book. So those were some of I think I asked you before, the is the Watergate there. one long? And, and is it giving new history? Yeah, it's both. It's it's long. It's a fat book, and he's pulling together stuff. I don't know how many Watergate histories have been written since uh, Deep Throat died, and that was revealed. So you know everything oh, prior to that all of a sudden becomes passe. So yeah, he's he's drawing on new research that I don't think anybody's kind of put together all in the same way before, and even corrects uh, Woodstein and Bernstein like, hey, they actually lied about this part, and. Uh, you know, based on what we know from historical records. So it's, it was a really interesting book and it sort of feels like, okay, you just read, you really need to read one book on Watergate unless you become a weirdo and decide to read a dozen of them. Yeah. Uh, th- that reminds me of a book I didn't mention, but I'll probably put on my list is Nuclear Folly, the history of the Cuban oh, Missile Crisis. Oh yeah, listen to that one. That was a good one. Oh, you listened to it? Uh, uh-huh. How do you say his name? Uh, it's like a Ukrainian or Russian last name. But yeah, it's it's I'm not quite through with it. It's very good and uh, shows you. I mean, it, luck. We would say as Christians, God's providence, people praying. But you just realize this really could have happened. And of course, one of his, you know, he has more access than other people have had to declassified Soviet papers and conversations so it's it's certainly not pro-soviet but it, it does present khrushchev with his own sort of moral compass so and and you realize for good things that kennedy did i mean you just he's what he's having he's having an affair with a 20 year old intern at the time and he's he's got you know debilitating back problems and it's it's amazing any of our countries stay afloat it's amazing that things aren't always a lot worse. Kennedy is one of those figures who continues to diminish through history um, you know, from kind of the the natural upsurge of yeah. interest from, you know, after his tragic death. But the more historians seem to go back, the more they seem to locate new problems with him, not only on the origins of Vietnam and we knew about Bay of Pigs, but then also, I mean, that, if I remember correctly, that book is pretty negative on Kennedy, especially in the sense that Kennedy was forced to concede. It was a loss. He did. I mean, in the end, we didn't have nuclear war, but he did have to concede something and ultimately had to lie about it and basically just tossed Adley Stevenson to the wolves for it. And was was sure that that Berlin was what they were after all along when right when they weren't. And you can be forgiven for not knowing what. But because Bobby Kennedy wrote the history, the first yeah. sort of history, understandably that Good shapes point. how Good everyone thinks of it. 
I did go and rewatch the movie. Is it called Thirteen Days? It has Kevin Costner and yeah. I mean, it's a good movie, but I mean, it, it presents the Kennedys as very principled, heroic stand up against their benighted advisors and warmongering military officials to to work for peace and do the right thing. Which isn't that is, a classic medium of the me- is the message. There, yeah. I mean, that's the media, tr- the the movie trope that you have to fill if you're going to talk right. about that. Right. All right, we're going to transition to one other topic, and before we do so, want to mention uh, our sponsor, Desiring God. We're all very thankful for the work that Desiring God does, and a book that we've mentioned before, worth mentioning again, "Workers for Your Joy." by David Mathis. We've heard many rise and fall stories in our day of various Christian workers or leaders, but Scripture gives us a positive vision for what leaders in the local church are to be. Workers for your joy, the call of Christ on Christian leaders. Uh, David Mathis aims to address that and the needs we see in our own day by casting a vision from Scripture of what we're supposed to be, and that's fundamentally workers for joy. And you can purchase this through Westminster Books. Of course, Crossway is a great site to go for for Crossway Books and uh, Westminster Books. Uh, It's always trying to undersell Amazon and good to support them whenever you can. And we're thankful for DG as well. Here's what I want to talk about for our remaining minutes here. Uh, Themelios, weird name, uh, good good word, but great resource that uh, comes out through the Gospel Coalition it's an academic, peer-reviewed journal, and it's for free, and it's amazing how almost every article I want to read, almost every book review I want to read, and in this last volume, an issue that came out a week or two ago, had, uh, I think, at least three articles about J.I. Packer, and this one by Paul House. Uh, Paul's at Beeson, right? Correct. Yes, and and goes to yeah, and goes to Briarwood, mm-hmm. I believe. J.I. Packer and the next wave of evangelicalism: foundations for renewal. And Paul goes through and talks about the different waves. First wave: rekindling the UK evangelical heritage. Second wave: expansion and limits of UK evangelicalism and its institutions. Third wave: expansion and limits of North American evangelicalism. 79 to 99, fourth wave seeds for renewal, 1999 to 2020. And I'm happy for you guys to go back. And I know we love talking about Packer and you can talk about what House says about Packer in those four stages. But I want to make sure we, we also focus on five, which is foundation stones for the next wave of evangelicalism. And just think together in light of Packer and that good history, but where... Paul leaves us with this article, and that's thinking about the next wave of evangelical renewal. And, and maybe the most important question at the beginning is, is there such a thing as evangelicalism? And if there is, is it even worth renewing? What say you, Justin? I think there is something known as evangelicalism. I think it becomes more confused and more contested as time goes on, especially as the media is uh, insistent that it just represents the right wing and uh, Republican voters, and then certain people sort of adopt that uh, 
terminology for themselves, uh, even if they're not classically evangelical. But uh, Don Carson, I mean, has made two points because this is an issue that's exercised to him over the years. Number one, uh, we want to retain the word evangelical if we can, because it's a biblical word. The evangel is the people centered on the good news upon the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then Don has also made the point that probably we need to have some form of adjective in front of it. So, you know, are there progressive evangelicals? Are there classical evangelicals? And insofar as we're talking about classical evangelicalism, represented by the likes of, in the 20th century, somebody like a Carl F.H. Henry or a J.I. Packer, um, I think we need to retain that. And I think, I agree with Paul House, we can build upon it. Um, I think that uh, Mark Knoll talking about David Bevington's work one time said that there's no such thing as evangelicalism and David Bevington has given us the best definition of it. So there's, there's a paradox there, I think, when you talk about evangelicalism. Um, it's hard to delineate it in an exact way so that everybody who... There, there are people who are evangelical who don't claim that they're evangelical, and there are people who claim to be evangelical who aren't evangelical, is one way that I'd put it. And obviously we can talk a lot more about that, but I would say, yes, there is something uh, that's evangelical, and there's something worth preserving and trying to expand. Um, and yet, at the end of the day, I think we still need to remember in our own personal lives, our local church is the most important thing, you know, our denomination. But there's there's this wider network, there's this family that uh, that can be a force for good, and we want to try to expand it and preserve it from my point of view. Yeah, it's notoriously difficult, and there's lots of, lots and lots of historical work and argument on whether it exists. Uh, did it just start in the 18th century with Wesley Whitfield Edwards? Is it really, if you look at the Bebbington Quadrilogy, you can put all of that back into, uh, you know, the first or second generation of, of the Reformation? Or when we talk about evangelicalism, are we, are people just talking about that post World War II? Henry Ockengay, Billy Graham, all of that. I I, I think uh, there's nothing you know particularly ingenious about this, but I think historically evangelicalism is against certain things at certain times. And in, in so one, it's not Catholic. Now I know there are Catholics who who call themselves evangelical. But I'm just saying historically the first evangelicals are are Lutherans, so not Catholic. They're they're Protestant. And then you go to the 18th century, and you have to say evangelicals are not anti-awakening, if you put it in the negative. So there's part of this pietist tradition and part of this new light friendly toward the awakening. And then I think you go to the 20th century, and you say not liberal. So if you're talking about reformational, favorable toward revival and awakening, not liberal, Protestants, that's sort of gets at least my mental framework uh, situated to what we mean. Only by one part missing there, Kevin. That's a really good way yes. to put it. I think only one part missing post 1957, not fundamentalist. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, but I love that historical way of framing it because I was just thinking the same thing of 
it's not it, it's hard to when you just say what it is positively it gets really amorphous because there's no institution there's no control but then when you say what it's not not catholic not old light not liberal and then not fundamentalist whatever's left over that's kind of evangelical right and there's you know i'm a i'm a presbyterian first in, in the sense that that's going to be my that is my denominational home and that's where i find my confessional boundaries and there is a thing called the presbyterian church there's not a thing in the same way called an evangelical i mean there are denominations with that name we know but uh, not a denomination that now you're part of evangelicalism here's the statement of faith so i understand all of those critiques and i i think they're they're fair critiques and yet if if we say that sort of Colin definition that you just gave, whatever is there, and at least I'll just speak as a Presbyterian. Uh, yes, if I if if our influence as Calvinist Reformed Presbyterians can be bigger than just in our Presbyterian denominations, as it typically has been throughout history, and certainly throughout American history, then wouldn't we want to? to think and pray and invest in some efforts to be leaven. It, so we don't have to just choose, I'm only interested in this this one thing or this one area versus others. And so I, I do think it's, as an ism, is something that's still worth pondering, still worth renewing. Now, this leads into the heart of the question. For, for so many, I think, evangelical uh, now is just attached to certain institutions, some of which came out of the post-World War II consensus. And that's why you, when when we have these fights, and I won't name the sort of people or sort of institutions or uh, informational organizations that we might be in constant, you know, scrabbles, scrabbles, hard scrabbles, squabbles with. Uh, but the, the reason those things, you know, we don't get in, people in our tribe don't, they're not getting in fights with, the United Methodists. I mean, somebody is, but you don't pay attention to it or even to the PCUSA. But you go back in the 20s and 30s, of course, all of these, because the the fights have have sparks to them and fire and smoke when they're with people that you're, you used to be aligned with, or it seemed like you were, or it seemed like you were sharing a denominational home, or you were sharing uh, a network of influencers or publishing houses or schools or magazines and this this happens we know this happens in history and has happened in the 20th century at least a couple of times where there's a fallout and so now generations later you know you don't get bent out of shape about you know what happens at riverside church this it's a whole different network different but now we're certainly in the middle of a sifting of a number of evangelical institutions, some of which have served the Lord well and might not make it, some of which have taken a turn in one direction or another. So, Colin, is it what, what do we do with this institutional fallout? Is it do we try to renew? Do we uh, say, well, some are going to go one way, some another. Let's start new institutions. How do you think? I know you yeah. think about these macro sort of sure. issues a lot. You know, it's interesting, Kevin, about that piece by, by our friend Paul House. It's that the institutions don't normally last. 
Mm-hmm. They just they don't they don't normally make it. There's lots of places that used to be a big deal, and they're not anymore. So the spirit seems to blow where he will, and that's one of the things that Paul talks about is the the necessity of institutions, but not putting our faith in those institutions, but ultimately putting our faith in God and our trust in His Word, and that's kind of the evangelical <laughs> spirit is that it doesn't inhabit an institution. It tends to morph according to the times as a renewal movement as opposed to an institutional identity. So that that is one thing to just not put our faith ultimately in institutions because the, 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 the challenges that often gave except rise the to church, them. Except the church, of course. Yeah, except for, except right, for the right. church. And yeah, I'm mostly talking about parachurch. Though I will yeah. say, over time, those institutional local churches don't necessarily right. continue either. Um, you don't have Jonathan Edwards Church out there as an evangelical institution today. Uh, Princeton Seminary. They were is one still of the. Fir- it was one of the first churches to perform gay quote unquote marriages right. in the state right. of Massachusetts. Jonathan exactly. Edwards Church. Exactly. And Princeton Seminary may be the most important evangelical institution in the 19th century. Is not a friend of evangelicals today. So I do think we just need to be chastened by the Spirit. And I still think places like Beeson Divinity School, where I serve, Wheaton College, Christianity Today, these places, I think those institutions are worth supporting. They're worth fighting for, at least. Um, And and they are, I think, properly described as evangelical. But I think, and so I don't, I do think the evangelical spirit is a cooperative one. But it's in tension between the liberalism and the fundamentalism. There is a sense in which sometimes you do need to separate. Um, To be able to preserve the mission, you must separate. But at the same time, you have a natural bent toward wanting to work together with God's people as much as possible insofar as you share that gospel message and that gospel mission uh, to see people's lives transform now and into eternity as they escape the judgment of God through the grace of God uh, through Jesus Christ. So that's just how I think of it. It is worth fighting for them, but I think it it can be tempting, especially if you're people like us, all of whom are aligned and working for evangelical institutions. It can get really—there's a lot of things that can happen when people are trying to preserve the institution— they can lose focus. I'm not criticizing our organizations for doing that, but they can lose the focus on the mission. And and that is the mission is ultimately what what Paul's calling us back to what Paul House is saying is make sure you're you're not so focused on the evangelicalism that you forget the gospel for which we exist in the first place. So, yeah, a lot of a lot of good there. thoughts. I I I I'll add that I'm I'm less sanguine about I'm not as sanguine as you are about all the things you just mentioned in the, your list. Uh, yeah. I, I'm not sure if Christianity Today is going to end up pulling in the same direction that that's not what I mean. To I'm say, pulling I, in. I, I just meant to say that it's evangelicalism is not a thing, but it there are institutions that you could only describe as evangelical. And I was just saying it's worth trying to preserve them, but it's not worth like investing sure. all of your hope in them. That's all I was trying to say. I wasn't trying right. to make a, you know, broader statement on that. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, Justin. Yeah, the institutional thing is the most interesting to me because Christianity today is a good example of an umbrella it, it was 
pitched originally and founded as an umbrella organization that can appeal to all evangelicals of goodwill, that they can turn to that as a magazine for news and for book reviews and for editorials that are setting the direction for the future. And my sense is that in this current climate, it's going to be very difficult for any sort of, I mean, for lack of a better term, call it an umbrella organization that appeals to all sides of the spectrum on these various issues. So can those umbrella organizations survive? It seems doubtful to me. It seems like they're going to either have to go to the right or to the left or to focus and can no longer uh, or just contract. Right. Instead yeah. of trying I to be mean, this that... big, try to be this big instead. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. And can then a related question is, can new umbrella organizations be started? Um, you know, another organization would be the NAE, right. National Association of Evangelicals back in the day that you know, I don't. I don't really know of any living evangelicals who look to the NAE for guidance these days, other than perhaps some mega churches. But what sort of organizations and institutions do we need to start? Uh, what What's working and what can't work? So I look at an organization that I'm no longer a part of, but used to be a part of, Desiring God. And from all accounts, they're thriving, they're growing, mm-hmm. they're prosperous, they're churning out good material. But they're not trying to be all things to all people. They they know who they are, and they're appealing to um, a certain demographic and get a lot of shots from both the left and the right. But they sort of know who they are, and they're keeping their head down, and they're not interacting on social media uh, with critics. I, I tend to think that's probably the future is not an evangelical organization, but many evangelical organizations appealing to niche constituencies and then seeing if they can expand those and get more people to join them. That to me seems like the institutional wave of the future rather than something that's going to be a rallying cry for people kind of across the spectrum. I may be wrong on that. Well, there is real, real quick on that point, Justin, those are great points. There are umbrella organizations for evangelicals that are very successful the most successful one is called the Republican Party. I mean, that that's the problem is but the way the best way to convene is to focus on the politics because the politics is in a binary. All of our other issues are all over the place on baptism and how do you approach this issue over here? But the advantage of politics is that it's this or that. There's not really you know, there's not a bunch of shades like there are with our denominations or our churches or the media landscape. So oddly enough, the easiest way to organize evangelicals is to focus on the political binary. And then we're right back to the problem that you started off with us talking about, which is the political fascination. Go ahead, Kevin. Well, I was just going to say, uh, take a little <laughs> different direction. Uh, the challenge is, this is true throughout her- church history. We can certainly see it just in the last uh, 75 years. Evangelicalism groups coalesce around a set of issues that, it, and, and there's no Bible verse that just tells us which issues you should you should put forefront and which ones you shouldn't. So take something that we're all very familiar with, New Calvinism, Young Restless Reform, thank you, Colin, you know, a certain set of issues, inerrancy and penal substitution, complementarianism, doctrines of grace, 
uh, not liberal, not emergent, a whole set of things. But yet there were other things that were, okay, we'll uh, polity, we'll have, we'll, differences will be okay there. Some sacramental differences will be okay. Um, differences over charismatic stuff, which was dividing churches like those in the previous just 10 generation. or 20 years. Yeah, the previous Absolutely. generation. But but also what happens is there are certain unwritten kinds of expectations. So just take on the charismatic issue. I think with that sort of Young Restless Reform Network, it was it was kind of an unwritten. Yeah, it's uh, it's the open but cautious, and it's the cessationist. But you know that's not what they get up. Those two kind of groups can exist, but then when the open but cautious became open and I'm all in on this and we really this is front and center of of what we that was always there so there's these groups that come together and they have certain things that they say this is what we're about and there's other things that we're not going to make as important and then there are there are just certain ways of being that you don't even realize initially you all do share in common which may be sociological theological ecclesiastical and so it's it's bound to happen that certain groups that started in seminaries and networks and magazines that started in the 40s or 50s or 60s around a certain set of issues, now new sets of issues. And we've seen this even in the last 10 years with all of our networks, new sets of issues. And it's not as simple as saying, you know what, we already established the right core of ideas and we shouldn't be divided over these new issues. That's sometimes true. I think we would say if churches and, and networks and institutions just started saying, we're now putting our masking stance in a statement of faith, yeah. we, we, we can look and say, well, that's, that's, that's a mistake. And some maybe de facto kind of started to do that. But we could say, that's a mistake. That's one where you should just say, guys, th- let this play out. Don't let this. But then there are other issues that are going to come up because we would have people who would say, um, on sexuality issues, well, th- there's lots of smart people on both sides who are trying to figure out and how to minister to LGBT friends, and all the, th- the three of us would say, these, yeah, you're right, the Christians in the past didn't write these into their statement of faith because they didn't have to, yeah, didn't but have now to. We're, we're not going to be faithful in our generation if we yeah. count these as just agree to disagree, big tent issues, and you know what? The, the arrangement that they came up with in the 1950s serves us now in the 2020s, or even what happened in the 2005 now serves us. So there's no one right answer to say adding new issues is always a mistake and divisive, or uh, to just always agree to disagree when new issues comes up because, hey, you know what? We all agree on the Nicene Creed, and we all agree on the Apostles' Creed. Well, that that's wonderful and that's not to be taken for granted and our catholic friends agree on the nicene creed and the apostles creed and the reformation still happened and we need to have the historical awareness and also honesty to look back and say you know sometimes in the heat of the moment our historical heroes made things too important that we can now say ah you couldn't figure out how to figure you know get along with that one and yet there are some things that they elevated of real central importance that we would do well not to forget. So I'm not answering the question except to say 
anyone who tries to say it's very simple uh, is going to be mistaken. Let me give you a quick, quick illustration of this, Kevin. So one of the things I was hoping to do this year, and you guys are going to give me, you guys are just going to groan at me, is that we had some folks reach out who wanted to update the, this is from the Packer article, the International Council on Biblical Inerrancy. Okay. Right. And they I've wanted to update it. offing for a while. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, and they've wanted to update it because there are new challenges that the original statements don't adequately express. In other words, the proposals are coming from conservatives saying we right. need to strengthen this from a conservative perspective. But the problem is when you go out there saying, hey, we need to update, other people hear you say we need to change. And change can only be from the liberal perspective. So it's just interesting looking back on this year, we were trying to say this is a there are new challenges that need to be addressed in order for us to be faithful in our generation. But then the response is, but once you open that up, it's just going to be a Trojan horse for liberalism and you're going to undermine the whole thing, which was not the case. But you can see how that works out. And when I went through that experience, I thought, that helps to explain a lot of how these move these evangelical movements have a hard time adapting with time because you either get frozen in a certain moment with issues that are not as pressing anymore or you do you try to update but in the updating you do run the risk of veering off into a different direction and losing some of your original consensus there so it was just a good illustration i felt like from yeah, this last good. year of the challenges that we're talking about Justin, any last thoughts before we wrap this up? No, uh, other than just to say, let's let's keep the memory of Packer alive and well. Oh, um, praise God, yes. Thanks. <laughs> what a man. Uh, I'm grateful for the Thamelias article, and the three of us all uh, had our disagreements with Packer, <laughs> I think especially as it relates to uh, his forays into Roman Catholic yeah. ecumenical dialogue and certain sure. decisions he made. But I think one of the easiest things for evangelicals, ironically, to forget is uh, personal piety and integrity. And we all we all know it's important. We, yeah. we're, we're reminded of it when there's uh, pastoral crises and people flame out and have moral failings and the like. But we we need heroes, uh, you know, with a, a lowercase h uh, that are, are men with feet of clay like ours and who are sinful, but who sought to walk by the Spirit and to live a sanctified life and to live a life coram Deo. Uh, J.I. Packer was that, and he was a man who read his Bible regularly and loved God's people. I mean, Paul, Paul House has a little line in there about you know, he, he wasn't always strategizing about, yeah. you know, here's my 10-year plan, my 20-year yeah. plan. Uh, he kind of took assignments as they came to him. Yeah. Not not everybody should do that necessarily, <laughs> but there's something so refreshing about the man, his his godliness and his devotion to Christ and his unashamedness to speak about his love for Christ and his uh, intimate walk with the Spirit and, and all of those sort of things. I just think, Let's keep the memory alive and seek to replicate that by God's grace in our own lives as he as he wills and as he enables. That's a good word. And and piety can unfortunately be a bad word for people. And, and I know there's a, a pietism that uh, 
feels cloying, as it were. But I think uh, pietism and piety is, you're absolutely right. If, if we're living in a day where we've become freshly aware of public sins among Christians and Christian leaders, and it's good to have our eyes open to that, I think at the same time we can become blind to private sins. Uh, and, and by that I mean the, the sort of old-fashioned, what sort of language do you use? Uh, what are you watching? Uh, I, I think we've become aware of how people treat and mistreat others. But some of those concern. I mean, I was just said something about somebody's language uh, last week, and you know, a tweet at me was, "Oh, this Victorian sensibility." I mean, that's what you just slap on if Victorian or Pietistic, and how dare you? Uh, and I, I just want to. You, you provided a good segue for ending this, Justin, with uh, referencing here at the end of Paul's article, he talks about Packer left, he calls them four stones for the next wave of evangelicalism. Good mixed metaphor of stones and (laughs) waves, or maybe the stones are thrown in and creating ripples. Yeah. Yeah. So first, he left the foundation stone of a strong family. Mm -hmm. Second, Packer modeled the foundation stone of humble service. He taught small colleges that boasted no international scholarly reputation. Third, he, this is your point, he wrote books and articles that came his way. And fourth, he imitated the English reformers he admired. He believed they planted seeds of renewal that he ought to cultivate. And th- that, that's so true, and it seems unremarkable, and yet it is in those, those remarkable steps of lifelong faithfulness that genuine seeds of renewal in your own personal life, in your own family, uh, and we have to remember some of our heroes, you know, Spurgeon, of course, he had a, a massive church, but his reputation now is, is different than it was when, when he was in his heyday. And so is Edward. And the s- same is true for so many who seem to be uh, less than they are now or seem to be more than they are now. And I think of the, the wonderful work the Lord has done through publishing houses like Crossway and through faithful schools and seminaries and, you know, RTS is the one I work for and and you work for, you know, do some teaching at Beeson and we could name others. But I think at its best, evangelicalism has been strengthened and renewed. And you think about how just the banner of truth, how, how much the church has been served in these last generations by the, the work that Ian Murray and others have done to, publish these books that we just take for granted. And now Crossway does so much of that, and so do other publishers. But books that, you know, you read about here in Packer's Day, had to go searching and scrounging around libraries for old editions of these. They just, they didn't have things that we just now can click and be on our doorstep in two days. Such an embarrassment of riches. So there's much to be thankful for and always much work to be done. And thankfully, the Lord is the one doing the work. Thankful for you guys. Hope you have a great Christmas and a happy new year. I'm sure we'll, we'll talk by text before that, but looking forward to having you back on LBE with the three of us come January. Until then, glorify God, enjoy him forever, and read a good book.